Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, uh, and you're hearing my voice, which means that you're not hearing Josh Shelton's voice, which means he didn't show up for work again, but at this point on the show, why should we be surprised that Josh Shelton did not show up? But instead, you know what? We went out. We got the best in the business, the most reliable podcast co-host I've ever experienced in my entire life, the one, the only, Dr. Ellen Wald. Ellen, it's so good to have you on the show. I am so excited to be here that I got out my special Frackers t-shirt to put on to do this podcast. Um, it's actually a fake a fake um, baseball team from this TV show called Brockmire, where they have this team called the Moorestown Frackers. But anyway, I'm all ready <laughs> for the Texas and oil and gas. All right. All right. Well, let's get into it. A couple things. First off, um, if you don't know, Ellen and I co-host a show called Energy Week Podcast, more geopolitical type stuff. Be sure to check that out. Ellen also has a book, uh, a best-selling book, I might add, Saudi Inc. And go sure go, if you're interested in Saudi Arabia, uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Ellen? Aramco. Saudi Aramco. Thank you. Um, if you're looking for, interested in all things Saudi Aramco, uh, Ellen has written the definitive book on that. Can we say that now, the, the, the definitive can- piece? We can say that definitive, definitive book. It's also, it was called recently, uh, the book is the talk of the town among oil traders. So if you don't want to be left out of the talk of the town of oil traders, you should pick up a copy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, Alfonso Colombano in my book came out this week. It is doing really well. We're really excited. We're um, number one in new release in a couple categories, best selling in a couple categories. So it is doing great. Really excited about that. Um, we'll link to all the books in the show notes. So be sure to pick you up a couple books for your summer reading. Um, let's get to the show, Ellen. Okay. So first thing, let's talk about this. Um, Josh and I covered this last year. Uh, about September, October, there was a report out that a lot of the U.S. producers were uh, hedging actually ahead of the pace that they normally did. And now we're seeing that they've missed out on there's you know, headlines. Hey, um, you know, the oil got to 70 and producers, you know, they got $55 oil because of the hedging. And it's one of these headlines that's kind of frustrating because if you go back to last year, Wall Street was almost demanding that they hedged out because they were saying, hey, you have to increase your returns to your investors. Don't worry about expanding your drilling program. So it's a true statement, but it's actually something that sh- I think everyone probably could have seen coming if you would have known the prices would have you know went to 70. Yeah, but at that point, I mean, how many people knew that the president was going to decide to pull out of the Iran deal in May, which ended up being one of the major factors that sent oil prices kind of skyrocketing uh, for that time? Oh, no, I, I agree. I'm just saying that, that the fact that, um, so let me rephrase it like this. If we were sitting back last year, we said, "Well, producers are hedged out 50, 55. Um, That's that was that was not a surprise. I guess the surprise maybe that the that the oil went to seventy, but but it's one of these things where you you, it's, you can't go back and judge. I think the show producers mainly because Wall Street investors pressured them into this kind of mentality. Um, and I, I understood why at the time it made a lot of sense. Hey, we want to guarantee we make money um, on some level in twenty eighteen, and this was just, this was the risk you pay when you uh, when you hedge out." Yeah, that's that's definitely true. One of the really interesting um, kind of points that I saw when I was looking at this was that the top 25 shale producers are, will forego about $1.7 
billion in combined revenues in the second quarter. That's just in the second quarter, 1.5, no, sorry, $1.7 billion in combined revenues uh, just because of this, this hedging that they did. At least that's according to the Denver-based consultancy Petro Nerds, which I kind of love that name. <laughs> Petro Nerds. Well, and let's put this in perspective because they do miss out that money. And I, I think, you know, on the show, we talk about a lot about trying to be fair with the with the Permian producers, Eagle for producers. You know, when they do good, we do good. When they do bad, yeah, call it like it is. Um, if we go back to when the, when the prices fell, uh, Harold Hamm had all, I think, hedged at 60 or 65. He had a lot of his a lot of his barrels tied up at that price, and he sold them all off. And as we know, prices went down to, what, 12, you know, they were down to the bottom yeah. of the barrel. And so he lost. Yeah, he lost. All, yeah, I can't remember what it, where it bottomed out at. It was low. And so he lost out on on hundreds of millions of dollars because he didn't do that. Um, and so it's one of these things where, yes, they are losing money, um, but it, it's – I feel like sometimes these these articles, they're accurate, but to tell the whole story, you have to kind of go back and remember why we are in the situation we're in. And that's because, you know, if they didn't hedge out and guarantee, um, hey, that we're going to be able to generate this type of income, um, Wall Street would have probably devalued some of their stocks. We would have seen a lot more negative reports coming out um, and a lot of pressure on the Permian producers. But here's the thing. Do you think they really would have pulled – their investment and pulled, especially those those lines of credit, because one of the the things that that at least that I saw going on at that time was this idea of kind of like everyone's going, why are they still? Why are these Wall Street firms, you know, still funding funding these these firms? They're not they're not making any money off it. What is it? And part of the answer was just that there is there wasn't anywhere else for them to put their money. Like they needed somewhere to put the interest rates were low. You know, what were they going to do with their money? And so, you know, it'd be interesting to know. I mean, I don't know how we would know this, but it'd be interesting to know if anyone kind of called that bluff by Wall Street and said, hey, we're going to hold out and see if we can get a better deal. And, you know, we're going to kind of call your bluff and, and, you know, are you really going to withdraw your, your, your funding? I mean, I think it's a... It's, it's, it's an interesting question to, to consider if there were any funds, because it says here like the top 25 shell producers, but I wonder if, if there were any that, that held out. Right. Well, I don't, you know, I guess let me rephrase it like this. So I don't know if they would have done that, um, but we, I think we both would agree that some of these investment banks would have written reports about how the stock wasn't is worth, you know, you know, $75 a share, $85 a share, or whatever the share price is, maybe to leverage them <laughs> to get them to do what they want them to do, though. I, I don't think that's a stretch. <sighs> No, not at all. I mean, once a com- you know, once you get some, you know, uh, company rating some stock is, you know, sell instead of buy. I mean, uh, look personally, I don't find those, you know, I, I don't, I don't find it, I don't find those compelling to me. But other people do, and and that's a that's a, a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it is. But regardless, um, they did it. This is where we're at, and. On the flip side, if for some reason I know we're talking about OPEC with uh, with David Blackman here in a minute, be, you know, you and him can kind of parse that out for us. Um, but I, I think you know, let's just say, and I don't think this is going to happen. Let's just just be kind of crazy for a second. If OPEC comes and opens the floodgates, and Venezuela comes back on the market, and all of a sudden oil goes down to thirty five dollars. Funny, uh, it, 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 it is funny. It is funny. Just just bear with me. But if prices drop back down to forty two dollars a barrel for the next eight months, um, then all of a sudden these fifty five dollar hedges look genius so you lost some money here but then the next you know um, six eight months you can you'll make it back 
if not more. So I don't think the price is going to go that low, but but that's what they're trying to protect themselves against. And as we talk about on our show a lot, no one knows what the price of oil is going to do. So you're you're kind of stuck. Do you gamble or do you go with the safe bet? Yeah, I mean, it's... And, and you can't rely on any forecasts. I mean, look at just how many times the bank, you know, the big banks have had to revise their forecasts. I mean, and honestly, I mean, I, you know, I hate to like elevate OPEC and say like that, you know, they know what they're doing and, and whatnot, because half the time they have no clue what they're doing. And what was it? Ali Al-Name used to say, only Allah knows the price of oil. I mean, this is a guy who knew what was going to happen with, you know, most the largest, you know, percentage of, of barrels of, of oil in the world. And even still, he he knew that he couldn't tell. But you know, this shouldn't be that much of a surprise because back in um, the last OPEC meeting in in November, when I was there, um, you know, I was I was there. I was listening to uh, Khaled Al Fali. He was you know giving the the press conference, and he said very clearly twice that they expected. That there were going to be some big, you know, OPEC producers who were going to face involuntary declines during 2018. I mean, he was, and, and everyone knew that Venezuela was declining, but there were others. I mean, Angola is a big one that no one really talks about that much, and and others, Algeria as well. And and that 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 statement kind of got lost, I think, in all of the, you know, everything else that was going on. But that's really, I think, been the big story this year is you know, these incredible um, involuntary declines that have pushed prices up, you know, to the point where then you go and do something in foreign policy, and then that can just cause the price to, to shoot up. Um, but, you know, it may have, they may have wanted to listen to that a little more than they did. Right. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see because, you know, I, I feel, so the show producers have done uh, plenty of made plenty of bonehead decisions, so they have that to deal with. But it feels like right now, um, coming out of the downturn, last year was an okay year. They're trying to get their feet underneath them, and it feels like the media, no matter what they do, it's like they never make the right decision. And, and and I guess for me, sitting back, it's like, okay, hey, yeah, they make bonehead decisions. We 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 see that. We talk about that. That's fine and dandy. Um, but now it almost feels like, hey, guys, what were you doing hedging at fifty five? It's like, well. I mean, I don't know. I read those headlines last year that made it pretty clear that Wall Street expected guaranteed returns, um, and so now it's like going into you know going into 2019, they won't hedge, prices will fall, and then everybody be like, "Why didn't you hedge? What were you thinking?" You know. Ah, <laughs> uh, exactly. But at the same time, when you think about it, and, and you know, you can't. I mean, these these firms have a different set of concerns than than some of the the other oil companies, and you can't, you know. You can't blame them, and and then you get these these these, uh, you know, you get you get the president tweeting about how OPEC is evil and responsible for higher oil prices. But that would actually, I mean, it should hypothetically be helping American oil producers. I mean, I guess not if they're all hedged out at, at fifty five dollars a barrel, but you know, right. still. So he's he's pushing for lower oil prices, which wouldn't be good for shale producers. On top of which, then you have OPEC wanting to cut oil production or possibly wanting to to produce more oil too it's it's like everyone's got their priorities kind of crossed in weird 
weird ways. Okay, well, returning to the show once again, David Blackman, editor at Shell Mag, Forbes contributor. And you know what? I've got two people who have endorsed my book. And so let me thank y'all both publicly for writing endorsements for my book. Um, That alone, that alone makes you a worthy person in my mind. But no, seriously, thank you guys. Um, David, it's been a, God, it's been about a month or two since we had you on, man. How's it going? Just going great. You know, it's just a beautiful day in Texas, really enjoying life up here. Okay, well, let's get into it first off. Um, let's talk Permian Basin report come out this week. Um, exciting news, it sounds like, for the Permian. Uh, you're always big on the Permian. What was your takeaway? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, IHS Market, uh, which is Daniel Jurgen's outfit. Um, Dan, of course, is, uh, at least in my view, the like the preeminent expert on, on the oil and gas industry. He's the author of The Prize and a couple of other books about the industry. Um, and, you know, they produced a new study in which they uh, project that the Permian Basin is basically going to double and more than double in production between now and 2023, which is stark contrast to, I believe, the last time we, we talked. We talked about the, uh, the Dallas Morning News stories claiming that uh, all the oil out of the Permian Basin was going to be produced in seven years. So uh, now IHS market comes in projecting, well, gosh, no, we're going to double production in the next five years. So um, it's an interesting dichotomy we have going on in, in projecting what's going to happen in the Permian Basin. Are we going to double and then run out in five years? Is that what you're saying now? <laughs> no. I, and, and the truth is this. I mean, as long as prices, and we can talk about, you know, OPEC and Russia later on, but uh, as long as the oil price stays fairly robust, uh, oil production in the Permian Basin is going to continue to expand because it's, as Alan Gilmer at Drilling Info, it's a virtually inexhaustible resource. There are hundreds of billions of barrels of oil underneath the surface in those shell plays out there in the Permian. Um, and, you know, technology is going to continue to improve every day in the industry, as it always does. I mean, my gosh, look at what has happened to expected uh, recoveries out of out of each well in the Permian Basin. Just in the last three years, it's it's basically doubled. Just out of each hole you poke in the ground, you're getting you're going to get twice as much oil as you would have three years ago. Well, it's going to double again probably three years from now. Uh, it's not like we've reached the limits of technology and what it can do uh, with these shale formations. We're really in the early stages of producing crude oil from shale formations. Uh, that's what, to me, that's what is is the least discussed aspect of the shale boom really and truly in the United States is that think about we we have been producing crude oil from sand and limestone rocks uh, for 150, 160 years in this country. We've been producing crude oil from shale rock in the United States for a decade, 10 years, basically. Um, And so the thought that and, you know, you see people saying it, uh, that we are somehow reaching the limits of what this industry is going to be able to do in terms of producing crude oil from this rock is absurd. I mean, it's laughable. It's so wrong, it's hard to even say how wrong it is. We're at, we're at the tip of an iceberg, and as long as the price stays fairly robust, Production from the Permian Basin is going to continue to expand uh, many, many years into the future. 
can I maybe maybe push push on that for a second? But um, sure. what about in, what about demand? It seems one of the things that I've kind of been been tracking for or following for a little while is this um, kind of that there's a lack of demand for the type of oil that is coming out of the Permian Basin. It's great. We can produce all of this very light crude oil, but who's going to buy it? Well, it, we do have an issue. I think here in the United States, the main issue is is, is refining capacity. And so uh, we are having to export more and more of it because the refineries in the United States were basically set up to process heavy grades of crude coming in from Canada and other countries, Venezuela, which is falling completely apart. Um, and so, I mean, I don't really think globally there's any lack of demand for the gasoline to can be refined from this oil. It's just that in the United States, we have a limit on how much we can refine. And that, that's another part of the IHS report um, that isn't getting as much attention. It also projects that uh, exports just from the Permian Basin, crude exports, are going to rise to about 4 million barrels a day um, between now and 2023. And, and that's an awful lot. Um, you know, we're only exporting right now nationally about 2.6 million barrels a day. So that's a big increase. And, uh, you know, the, the problem we have with, with refineries to retool the refineries is a massive investment. And, um, you know, it's just an investment that uh, the companies that own the refineries don't really want to make because it's cheaper for them to just import more crude from overseas and, and refine those heavier grades of crude in their refineries. But I, and, and just speaking of demand overall, you know, uh, uh, the International Energy Agency uh, came out with their projection this past week on global demand for 2019, which they projected about 1.4 million barrels a day global demand growth over current levels. Uh, which is essentially what they projected in their initial projections every year since 2016. And they've always had to end up uh, raising that estimate as time has gone on. They always seem to want to underestimate demand growth uh, with their first uh, projection every year for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, David, question for you. I know you talk about the Permian, and this, and if you haven't seen this, we can go on to something else. It feels like the Eagleford right now, there's a lot of debate over what's going on down there. There was a report on Seeking Alpha a week or two ago talking about EOG's wells and how they're declining. Of course, EOG's been out there for, prom- I don't know, not, not the longest, but they were one of the first people to move out to the Eagleford um, mm-hmm. you know, about a decade ago. So I wouldn't, it, you know, they, they might, I don't know where they're at in their acreage in the drilling program, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were kind of ahead of the curve as far as um, seeing their well results decrease. Just a thought there. But then I read an article the other day that says, you know, the Eagleford wells are doing really well. Um, have you been following what's going on in the Eagleford and what's your take on that? Because I know you just mentioned the Permian's really increasing. Um, and I actually saw some numbers a month ago that said that the oil to gas ratio is actually improving now in some of the yeah. Permian wells, um, getting more oil than we were maybe last year. Um, but as far as the Eagleford stuff goes, do you have a, a, a strong opinion on what's going on down there? So much in the Eagleford depends on where your acreage is situated. And of course, you're right, EOG was one of the uh, early drillers uh, there in the in the Eagle Ford. Really, they, they came in, they had legacy acreage down there, and they began acquiring additional acreage in 2008, 2009. And uh, they have been for a long time, you know, 
getting one of the drillers that, that gets higher production levels out of their wells than others. Uh, and so I, you know, I don't know with their situation, it could just be that they, where their acreage is, they've drilled so many wells that they've drilled up all the best ones. And, and that's going to happen in any play area. And the difference in the Eagle Ford, of course, is that it's a single formation uh, where the Permian Basin, you know, there's what, 10, 11 shale formations now that they've identified that are oil bearing rocks. And so you have the, it's a massive single formation, but it is a single formation in, in a geographic space that's less than half the size of the Permian Basin. And so the Eagle Ford is is a massive oil field. It's probably you know going to end up producing more crude oil ultimately than the East Texas field. But when you compare that to a basin like the Permian, where you have all these different formations, just prodigious crude oil formations over this gigantic geographic area, um, it's not surprising that its results are kind of lagging behind. You, you know, of course, you can't get multiple completions within a single well uh, in the Eagle Ford either. Where in the Permian, you have the stacked formations and many times are able to uh, have multiple completions in, the, in a single hole. One more point I'd like to make about the Eagle Ford, if you don't mind. Please go ahead. If we have time. Uh, we'll is time. that is that, you know, the other thing that's happening in the Permian right now is this lack of, of takeaway capacity in the pipelines because, you know, the, ex, the expansion of production is just, you know, outpacing the ability of the midstream companies to build new pipeline capacity. And so for the next year, you're going to have this big blowout in realized prices. You're right now, a lot of producers who don't have firm capacity on the existing pipeline infrastructure are realizing a lot less for their crude because of the blowout in transportation costs. So I think what we're going to see the second half of the year that's good news for the Eagle Ford is that a lot of these producers are producing both basins and are probably going to reallocate some of their drilling capital that they really plan to spend in the Permian Basin, probably going to allocate some of that to drilling wells in the Eagle Ford and the Scoop Stack if they're producing up there. The Bakken could benefit from this. I really think that we're going to see rig counts starting June 1st, you know, when the second half of year budgets kick in, start to rise in those other basins because of that price blowout. That's a really interesting point because I think that a lot of the traders maybe who follow the rig counts, they might see maybe um, declining or stagnant rig counts in the Permian as a signal of something that's not happening, like you're saying, that production isn't necessarily declining, it's just being moved to other areas. And so I would say it would be important to keep an eye on rig counts in, um, like you said, in um, uh, in the Bakken and in the Eagle Ford and in, and in other areas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's the case. And, you know, and it, it, the thing about South Texas is the, the rig count right now is about 80, 85 in the Eagle Ford. And that's actually a pretty good, healthy rig count down there, um, just because it doesn't overload the infrastructure on roads and, and housing and stuff down there. You remember four or five years ago, we had 250 rigs running the Eagle Ford channel. Right. And I mean, it was just it was just overloading the ability of the road system and housing to keep up. You had all these man camps. So, I mean, 
from that perspective, yeah, I mean, they wouldn't mind seeing some more rigs down there just because of the economic activity. But right now, it's really kind of a healthy level for South Texas. You know, David, when you're on Energy Week um, a few weeks ago, I can't remember what episode it was. We talked about this um, kind of this news cycle that we're in right now where you, you mentioned a second ago the pipelines. But now we're seeing, as you mentioned, there's pipelines. I think in the Texas Roundup, we have some more pipelines. A lot of pipeline deals, mm-hmm. big pipelines are coming up, which is good news for the industry. And one thing we yeah. talked about right before you hopped on was there's headlines out this week of all the money that shell producers missed by hedging at uh, 55 and oil to 70. And, you know, me and Ellen were talking. It, it's one of these things, again, it feels like, and I, I, you know me, I try to be fair on the on the industry. When they do bad stuff, we criticize it. They do good stuff, we praise <laughs> it. But but here it feels like, you know, right now with the pipelines shortage and with the hedging issue, it feels like people are, some of them are reporting as just as a fact. And really, if we go back to last year, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on these firms to hedge out at 55. So, yes, they are yeah. missing money, but, I mean, Wall Street was really kind of pushing down on them. So, I don't know. It feels like right now that, um, we, you know, the shell producers make mistakes, granted, and we get on to them for that, and then we pressure them to do other things. And when they do those things, we're like, well, why'd you do that? And I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit interesting yeah. right now. And then next year, they won't hedge, and prices will drop. And you're like, why don't you hedge again? Yeah, and, and people people need to realize that the, the main purpose – for hedging production is not to maximize profits. It's to give your company right. uh, a predictable cash flow mm-hmm. so that you know you can plan your business around a $55 oil price if you've hedged all your production at that price or whatever. Now, right now, yeah, those that, that did 55s are, are looking you know, like they did the wrong thing, but OPEC and Russia are going to meet on June 22nd. As we're talking today, the price of crude is down $2.00 almost today uh, down to 64 because because Russia and Saudi Arabia have been you know talking a lot here in the last couple of weeks about increasing exports in order to curb the rising crude prices and if OPEC and Russia go about increasing exports and they they go overboard on it you, you could have the price fall, you know, back down below 50, and then all those people with those $55 hedges are going to look pretty smart, <laughs> you know. it's a, Hedges are funny things. <laughs> I, I'll push back on, on one of those things. I think part of the reason that we're seeing the price fall is because people misunderstood something that Alexander Novak said, where he – uh, he kind of—I'm not sure exactly either. He said it the way he said it, or the way that the headline was reported made it sound like he's going to push for a 1.5 million barrel right. per day increase, yeah. and that turns out is not actually what he said at all. What they were talking about is right now the um, the to, you know the total amount of oil that was being removed from the market was supposed to be 1.8 million barrels per day. He's talking right. about changing that to just 1.5 million barrels, which would mean adding only 300,000 barrels per day, which not that much, you know, in in um, in the grand scheme of things. I think it's like maybe one percent of the total amount of oil that this group is producing. Um, right. So I think there's like a little like over exuberance there. I think so, and it, you know that's the oil and gas uh, industry's example of fake news, right? You know, you just <laughs> uh, some media outlet. I don't know which one it was, and I don't want to say if I, if I did. Um, you know, just completely got the headline wrong. The story with it, actually, if you read down into the bowels of the story, got it right, but the headline writer got it wrong, <laughs> which is kind of a typical thing in the in the news media. 
but yeah, if they took out 300,000 barrels, if they, if they put 300,000 barrels a day more on the market, that shouldn't really have a major impact in prices, if for nothing else, because Venezuela's collapsing and Iran's exports are going to be falling. But yeah. to both of y'all's point there, um, you know, I've talked about this a lot. My frustration with the price moving, and I know you want to talk about Trump suites on OPEC, but, you know, we, we see the price move. And as we all know, you know, back in the early 2000s, news really moved um, the price of oil off of potential fear. It doesn't move it as much now, but we still kind of live in that reactionary, um, hey, man, this could happen, therefore. And it feels like, you know, that's just kind of part of being in the stock market where stocks are always reacting. But I don't know. At this point, the and gas market you would think would be a little bit less reactionary to headlines just because there's so many things that get reported that never actually come to fruition yeah there's there is and and that's a really good point there's so much just bad dumb information out there in the oil and gas media uh, the energy media in general the, the stories so many you know there's these blog sites and and a lot of people writing about it who are not at all like ellen wald who don't know anything about what they're talking about. And and so it's just like that headline. You, you just misinterpret one little thing, but it's the key point of what the guy's saying. You put that in a headline, but, but it's not just that. You know, there are just a lot of stories every day. I go out and browse and just see stories every day at some of these websites that are just so wrong and just kind of really amateurishly done but unfortunately they become very heavily trafficked websites that they get a lot of attention and can generate a reaction in the market i've had david on i don't know how many podcasts that's the first compliment he's ever given out ellen so um. <laughs> i am honored i'm i'm truly honored i noticed he didn't say ellen and ryan or ellen and josh or the global energy no, media ryan group too, you know, ryan <laughs> And by the way, that book endorsement, I endorsed the book because it's a really good book. And like I said in the endorsement, I wish that thing had existed 40 years ago. You would have advanced my career by five years. You know? <laughs> well, Just, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, let's get you out of here with this. First off, um, let's go ahead and run the audience. Shell Mag, you're the editor there. You're on Forbes um, posting stuff there. It seems like you really kind of increased that pace, or at least um, I see more posts about it. Um, so no. you're on Forbes a lot. Um, but let's talk about Trump tweeting about OPEC. Um, I know you kind of wrote a <laughs> piece about this other day um i'll be honest with you when i read this piece i figured where you're going and that's where you went um but yeah. what were your thoughts on it but, it, it but for a lot of people may not think that so we're, we're, what would you take on trump tweeting on opec yeah i've become too predictable i well it's just it's just another deal it's just so it's hard to even understand why he sent the tweet i mean he he sent the first tweet you know criticizing opec two months ago and say, you know, about high prices because we were going into driving season, gasoline prices are rising. Well, after he put out that tweet, and since then, price of oil has declined by more than 10%. And gasoline prices last week declined by 3% right in the middle of summer driving season, which almost never happens. Well, why did that happen? It happened because the price of crude has gone down. So he's actually gotten the result you think he, he was wanting with that first tweet, but now he sends out another tweet saying, well, you know, it's still too high. Well, I, my whole deal with Trump is you never really know. You read a tweet and the text of it seems to be addressing one issue, but what he may really be trying to do is get uh, the target of that tweet, Saudi Arabia or some other OPEC country, to agree to something over-related 
to some other negotiation that's going on that doesn't even have anything to do with oil prices. So it's just, you know, it's out there. People read those things. The market reacts to them somewhat, although I don't think the market really reacted much to this one. But the first one, the market reacted immediately, and it was very tangible. And uh, so, I, you know, it's just kind of fun to write about more than anything yeah. else. I'll 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 add. Not only did the market react to the first one, but he even got comments out of um, the <laughs> OPEC Secretary General and uh, Khaled Al Fali and the um, oil minister of the UAE, who all kind of responded to that that first yeah. week. you know what was funny about the about the second one? I saw it and I was like, oh man, I did not really want to talk about this all day. You know, this is going to be like everyone's just going to be talking about. It. Trump tweet all day, all day. And um, so it was uh, a guy, a reporter from Axios uh, emailed me to see like what my take on it was. And his his take was that he wants, is that Trump is positioning himself to kind of be seen as this like victor when right. um, Russia and Saudi Arabia, as many expect, will push through this decision to increase production at OPEC next week, which is entirely possible. I kind of saw it more as with maybe um, the Democrats have been doing a lot of discussion about gasoline prices. Um, right before this tweet, um, I think it was the Senator uh, Claire McCaskill was mm -hmm. doing this like um, RV trip through Missouri or whatever. And she kept making these comments. Like one of the fundraising emails, I think, had a comment about like, we need to raise money for gas. You know, gas is so high now. So I kind of <laughs> saw it more as like a, um, he, like a, kind of try to get the narrative back from the Democrats on, on and, that and, issue. And I think you're, you probably are right, but both of y'all are probably right. You know, I mean, it would be a very typical thing for a politician, any president to do, to see something that's about to happen and try to position himself to take credit for it, right? I mean, that's what politicians do. <laughs> and, and to try to take the issue away from the opposition party because, you know, they have been, the Democrats have been talking about gas prices a lot. So uh, I, I don't wouldn't doubt those motivations one little bit. And and everyone's favorite villain. OPEC is everyone's favorite villain. I mean, there's mm -hmm. basically nothing good you could say about OPEC. So, like, <laughs> it's, it's the perfect villain. It's got, like, your worst human rights offenders. Now Russia's part of it. I mean, like, come, yeah. like, let's just blame OPEC for, you know, the fact that, like, we're getting too much rain in Florida right now. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, nobody has a high opinion of OPEC, but I'll tell you this. Every domestic oil producer in the United States should be eternally grateful to OPEC and Russia. <laughs> for entering into that export limitation agreement, because had that not happened, we'd still be producing oil at $40 a barrel, you know, yeah. so. Well, well David, um, as always, I love talking to you. I love it when you and Ellen talk, because you are both so smart on this stuff. It's, it's good. It's, I just like sit back and listen to it, because you, you two are, are like, you know, you're all the smart ones here. I like to just to banter around. But thank you for coming on. Um, Shell Mag, you're the editor there. What's your, what's your upcoming piece, or did you just have a, recently have a piece out, or where, where are we at with that? Yeah, this year's, uh, well, this year. The, the next uh, issue comes out around July 1st. Uh, the cover is uh, Tommy News, CEO of Oasis Petroleum. And the story is largely about their new entry into the Permian Basin, but also is a profile of the man himself. And uh, they, those covers are, I really love writing them. And this one to me was uh, one of the more interesting ones I've done. Tommy's a great uh 
a very, very good uh, interview subject, and uh, he has led an extraordinarily interesting life. So I, I hope everybody will go read it when it's published. Okay, good deal. And then you'll be on Forbes regularly writing um, various energy-related pieces, so be sure to check out David there. It's good talking to you again, David, and uh, hope to have you back on this show or Energy Week or something soon. Always enjoy talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, thanks again to David Blackman for coming on. Always love having him on. Um, be sure to check out his stuff at Shell Mac and Forbes. Let's hit the Texas Roundup now. A couple news stories worth talking about. Phillips 66 to expand Texas NGL project. This came out on June 13th, and this will be located down in Sweeney, Texas. And it's going to increase, let's see here, I think it's going to, um, the expansion includes the construction of two natural gas fract- fractionators with a capacity of 100 150,000 barrel per day each, the Houston-based company said. So there's that one. ExxonMobil, Ellen, here's this story again. We talked about Energy Week. ExxonMobil, the the headline's a little bit better, I think. ExxonMobil, Plains All-American Plan, Permian-based pipeline. Not that much better. This is from AP. If you didn't hear about this, guys, um, this is something that us in Texas should be really excited about. It's big news. It's going to um, hopefully ship about a million barrels a day. A lot of oil being transported on that. So if you are in the business of working for planes uh, or Exxon, there's that headline. And the final one, a story not really Texas-related, but it, it, we followed this. I wanted to follow up. Pioneer Natural Resources Company announced a sale of $79 million. And they've been unloading, as you remember, they're, they're, they said last year they're going all in on the Permian. And so they're unloading all of their stuff outside the Permian. And this is in the Raton Basin in southeastern Colorado for a cool $79 million. And that was announced just the other day. So some of our listeners, I know you do work in South Eastern Colorado, there's you some opportunity there, but also it means that Pioneer should have more capital to go invest in the Permian. If you're not work for, working for Pioneer, I would strongly advise you look into that. So that's the three things in the roundup. Um, hopefully, Josh Shelton will, will, will be back next week to help with um, drilling counts, roundup, you know, just actually do his job. That would be nice of him to show up for work every now and then. Um, it's, it's depressing, but anyways. Um, you know, Ellen, you show up for work. What's it like showing up for work regularly? You know, it's really, really tough. I have to drag myself in. I've got like two mugs of coffee here. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take his job if he's not careful. Hey, hey, it would be a it would be a step way, way up. So, uh, Josh, don't don't tempt me here, buddy. But uh, Ellen, so Saudi Inc. Investing.com, Forbes.com, Energy Week podcast. Did I did I miss anything there? Um, I have a blog on Thompson Reuters that okay. is out. I will send that out soon on my uh, Twitter. If you do want to follow me, if I haven't bored you to death on this podcast, you should uh, follow me on Twitter at Energized Economy. That's E-N-E-R-G-Z-D Economy. And, and I'm not just saying this because Ellen's on. I said it when me, her, and Dave were talking offline just a second ago. David Blackman, Ellen Wall, two of the smartest people in energy <laughs> I know. So seriously, follow her, follow David. They are brilliant in the energy. They're they're bigly. They're huge. They're I'll go Trump on it. They are Are we coffee feet though? <laughs> you know, if I knew what that meant, I might give it to you. But I don't I don't want to say that and then like, you know, a year from now I'll find out it meant something I didn't think it meant, so you're potentially Kofafi, so whatever that right. may or may not mean. So yeah, do follow Ellen on Twitter at Energized Economy. Ellen, 
thank you so much for pinch hitting for Josh. Really appreciate it. We had Brian the Olman in last week, and uh, you stepped up le- last minute. I mean, this was like last minute deal. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and looking forward to talking to you on Energy Week podcast next week. See you later. And for the listeners, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Text Along Guest Podcast. The live show will be coming back after July the 4th. So we've been taking some time off. Got the book that, that we've been working on. That's out now. Be sure to pick up a copy of that. Link will be in the show notes. Um, but the live show on Instagram is coming back after July 4th, that following week. So at Text Along Guest Podcast on Instagram for that. Hard hat stickers as well. You can find them there. Um, and everything else Text Along Guest related is on the Instagram page. This is Ryan Ray for Ellen Wald saying until next time, keep climbing.